Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, today we have an unusual setup. So our guest today is Jason Werbelov, and I'm going to be joined by the wonderful Sean Stanley as my co-host. Um, Jason wrote his PhD on whether groups exist, social groups. And uh, it's one of these topics that often comes up in our discussions. And we thought today would be the perfect day to entertain that in some detail. So Jason, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Thanks, Mark. Uh, I feel strangely nervous being on this side of the camera um, or this side of the interview desk, but okay. So imagine there's this ancient alien that has roamed the stars for centuries and millennia immemorial, and it's never met another alien of its kind or any other being of any species. <clears throat> and it comes down to Earth one day, it finds Earth in its random perambulations, and it comes down and it lands in the middle of the Witz Central Block Concourse. So Witz is the university that I attended when I was younger. And it lands in the middle of Witz. And let's just imagine this is pre-COVID days. So Witz is busy. It's no one's isolating yet. Uh, there's lots of people milling around. And everyone is aghast. There's this alien in the middle of the Witz Central Block Concourse. And we approach the alien. And Thankfully, even though the alien has never really chatted with anyone before, because it's never, well, it's never, it's never spoken before to anyone, uh, it's a very quick study and it learns language and it learns to communicate with us. And the alien wants to know all about our world and how our world works. And we say, well, we a plurality of beings. Uh, it's just lived alone, but there's lots of us. And uh, it, it wants to know how these plurality of beings are configured. And we say, well, we have a society and, and, and the alien says, I don't understand what's a society. I just know individual beings, myself being an individual. I see lots of individual beings. I don't understand the society. And we say, well, yeah, the society is composed of lots of different groups. And within this university right now, as you stare out uh, on this busy Witz, Witz Central Block concourse, you can see lots of groups. And, uh, and, and, and the alien says, group, what's a group? I see lots of individual beings, these humans walking around, but I, I don't see any groups. I can't touch a group. I can't really see a group. I can't taste it or feel it. I just see individuals. And, and we say, no, 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 you don't understand yet. It's the way that individuals are configured. We configured into groups. There's this group of students sitting over there and it says, what's a student? And we say, well, it's a particular kind of individual that attends classes. And you say, oh, well, what? And, and, and the alien says, well, what's a class? And now we have to explain what classes are. And then we explain that these individuals go home afterwards to a family. And the alien says, but, but what's a family? And we say, well, yeah, and, and that family, within that family are brothers and sisters and parents, and those parents go to a job, and it doesn't understand what a job is, and it doesn't understand what these companies are that its parent, that, that these students' parents work for, and it doesn't understand what schools are that it's that these, these students' siblings attend, it doesn't understand these group terms. It just understand it just understands what individuals are. And it points to a random cluster of individuals milling around and it says, okay, so there's a cluster of individuals. Is that a group? And we say, well, no, they're unrelated. There's, that's just a mere aggregate of individuals. And, and the alien says, but hold on, then what is the difference between just a mere aggregate of individuals, just a set of individuals and a social group, I don't understand. Why can't we just say there's individuals or just mere aggregates of individuals? And now the, these humans, we have to explain to this alien why social groups exist, but it's very skeptical. And what I think is that the alien is right. The lone alien that comes to earth is actually seeing things for how they are. There are no groups, there's just individuals. So I think that's very fascinating and I want to thank both Mark and Jason for allowing me uh, back on to terrorize more of your viewers. Um, so I'm going to begin the, the way our last episode began by saying I, I, I don't normally agree with most philosophers but I specifically and especially disagree with this view. <laughs> uh, the very least this is how I shall play my role. I wanted to, to uh, in, introduce an analogy between your alien and a child. The child is like the alien that they don't have experience of the world. Um, however, they do end up learning 
about the world and they become enculturated in our different societies. And so eventually, when the child uh, turns 18, 19, they go to university, they might go to WITS, and they see all these different collections of people, they can recognize, oh, well, that's the Democratic Alliance Society, that's the debating society. They, they can do all of this. So it looks as if the child can learn what it is to associate with the group, right? So the child might feel that it is part of a group, it feels part of a group. Why is that not sufficient for the child to say legitimately, there are groups, some of which I'm a part of, some of which I'm not a part of, depending on how they identify or feel. There's two parts to that question. The one is around how the child growing up identifies as part of a group, especially as it gets older. Um, but the second question is, why is that feeling not sufficient? Okay, so on my view, social groups and the view, the, the belief that there are social groups is what's called a folk theory. In other words, it's a commonly believed theory. And um, Sean's going to have some, uh, some sympathy for this because he thinks that certain folk theories are false. So one of the theories that Sean thinks is false, one of the folk theories, is the view that, um, that morality exists. And another folk theory that Sean thinks is false is the view that uh, mental states exist, that beliefs and desires and thoughts exist. It's also a folk theory. And I'm not going to go into either of those, but I think that the view that social groups exist and social phenomena exist is also a folk theory and that it's false. So just because we have this theory and this collective belief and this, uh, this feeling that groups exist um, or that particular things exist like mental states or morality, that's not sufficient to ensure that they are there. Okay, so that's, that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is you're alluding to a very specific account of social groups. It's what I call a subjectivist account of social groups. Now, a subjectivist account looks at people's mental states, individuals' mental states, and says, when you have a whole bunch of individuals with a particular set of mental states, and they together have the right sort of mental states, then we can generate a group from them. And the particular mental states that we have in mind are beliefs. So let's say I believe that I'm part of a social group and I believe that Sean is part of a social group and that particular social group and Sean believes that of himself and of me, then that would be sufficient to generate a social group between me and Sean. So an example would be, let's say Sean and I were married. I believe that Sean and I are in a marriage, that I belong to it, that Sean belongs to it and that together we belong to this marriage. And Sean believes the same. So Sean believes that he's married to me, that he's part of it, that I'm part of it, and together we're part of it. Now, this, this is what's called Gilbert's account of social, social groups. So she thinks that um, a social group is composed of individuals who have these mutual beliefs about each other, uh, that they're all part of a social group. Now, there's all sorts of problems with that, and I'm not going to go into all of the details, but it starts to break down, especially with larger social groups. So smaller social groups will still suffer some count examples, but larger social groups more so. So here's the biggest problem, is that if you take that account of larger social groups like political parties, for example, think about how many members of the ANC there are. I would think that there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of members of the ANC. The ANC is the ruling political party in South Africa, the African National Congress. Do all of those individuals know of each other that they are part of the group? Do they have these requisite beliefs that the others are part of the group? And it seems they just don't. And if they don't have those, those beliefs, then you know, the account fails because it requires those beliefs. Um, so yeah, I think there's problems for the account, um, but that is certainly one of the more prominent accounts in the literature. So you point out that one way to determine what a group is, is through these internal belief states. Um, but it seems like there might be other ways to determine a group. So in other words, you might just be observing the external behavior. So I might accept, well, sure, those members of the big political party don't know each other um, you know, sufficiently well to have all those belief states, um, but I can observe them and I can see that they all seem to be acting in unison. They're not just a mere random collection uh, of people um, that, they, that they coordinate their activity. 
you know, you, we might think about this in smaller cases, for example, like a football team. Um, you know, we look at that and we say this is a cohesive unit of people that are acting together in a coordinated manner with a particular goal in mind, which is to win this game, that they're passing the ball between each other. Um, it seems that there is also that internal bit. They all believe that they're part of the same team. But also as an observer, we look at that and we say these people are clearly part of a group. They're not just a random collection of individuals. This is the second set of accounts of social groups. Um, previously, I described the subjectivist accounts, the accounts that rely on the subject's mental states. What Marx and I are raising is this idea um, that a group can be seen to be a group from the outside. You don't have to be within a, an individual member's mental states to see that he's part of a group. You don't need to know what he believes inside his own head. You can look from the outside and say, well, that group is coordinating in a certain way. And so that's a group in a way that other individuals that are not part of a group don't coordinate. Um, so this is kind of like a beehive account of groups is that you would, you, there might be lots of different bees in the world, but certain sets of bees seem to coordinate in a certain way where we don't need to know what's going on inside their heads to know that they're part of a particular hive. We can just look and say, well, that set of bees is coordinating in such a way that we think that that's a hive and that set of bees is not coordinating with the original set. It's coordinating with a different set of bees. And so that's a separate hive. That's a separate group. And perhaps people are like this. Um, so there's a, there's a few problems with this. Um, so the one is that you get what's called dormant groups. So you get groups that don't really coordinate at all. Uh, not for long periods of time, they kind of disperse. And then over, over, let's say a committee that meets annually. So during the year, that committee doesn't engage at all. And then a year later, they come back and they engage again. That committee, it seems, has persisted through time. It's a social group that has persisted through time. And yet they're not coordinating in a way during that year um, that you can see from the outside. There's just no coordination at all. So that's a good case where coordination is not necessary. Um, but there's, there's other, there's other kind of examples as well, which show that coordination is not sufficient. So imagine uh, of the soccer team uh, that you've got the soccer team on the one hand that all believes they're part of a soccer team. They train very hard. They come together on the day and they play this match. And you're a spectator in, in, in the crowd and you're having a look at the soccer team playing and you say, well, look at the coordination. That must be a soccer team. That's a group. So that's case one. Case two, imagine you're also a spectator in the crowd, but unbeknownst to you, that soccer team uh, has never met before that day. And in fact, uh, they're not composed of individual humans with minds. They're actually zombies who just by chance, perhaps through divine uh, intervention, uh, these zombies happen to land on the field on the day and run around in, for them, for that individual zombie who has no uh, conception of the other things around it, it's just ran, running around in random directions. It just so happens that things coordinate in such a way by chance that they are kicking the ball to each other and scoring a goal. Um, but they don't know this, the zombies. They, they have no knowledge whatsoever. They're just running around aimlessly. Um, and in the two cases, everything will look identical from the stands from the audience member, it'll look exactly the same. The two cases will be qualitatively identical. But in the first case, we would say there's a social group. And in the second case, we would not. There's just a bunch of disparate individuals who from the outside look like they're coordinating. And yet that's not sufficient to generate a soccer team, not sufficient to generate a group. So it, it seems to me like um, this objectivist account is not providing conditions that are either necessary or sufficient to generate a social group. So I'd like to push back a little bit. I, I'm not going to rely too much on my own weird views because your weird views are under the microscope today. Um, <laughs> how, however, regarding the soccer team, uh, which is composed of zombies or the soccer team, which is composed of players with, with intentions to score a goal and, and win for their team and so on, from the outside, it is anyway the same thing. So from the outside, as uh, lay social scientists, we can't really tell the difference. We simply assume that there are these intentions and so on. And so the, these intentions are always built into our assumptions 
that we, we uh, um, imply into, into behavior or infer into behavior. But the question I wanted to go back to was a very personal one between our marriage, um, our sanctimonious uh, coupling. Um, you know, from the outside, it may be that we behave like a married couple, even if, for example, your intention is, well, I just want to be, you know, looked at as really handsome. So surely I'm going to be with Sean Stanley. You know, who else is going to make me look so good? Um, and any of my intention is, is similar. I, I want to be with a good looking fellow. Um, and other married couples may be, may be different. They may have other different intentions. However, it looks as if we can still generate statistics about married couples. We can still say that X amount of married couples stay together, Y amount of married couples get divorced, um, certain amount of married couples report uh, Z level of happiness. How do you account for these kinds of social facts when you're saying there aren't these social groups? I mean, surely these social facts are real. The social scientist who's sitting in the football stand and has a look at the zombies playing, um, well, ap apparently playing, because they're not playing. As far as the zombies are concerned, they're not playing football. It is a problem that that social scientist cannot tell the difference between the football team, the legitimate football team, and the zombie players. That's a problem to me, because in reality, the one is a soccer team and the other one isn't. So it says to me that social scientists cannot tell the difference between a mere aggregate of individuals and a social group. And that, to me, threatens the very foundation of social science, right? Um, I don't think social science has any backing whatsoever. I think it may be junk um, because it cannot distinguish between a mere aggregate of individuals and a social group, but it's assuming social groups in its analysis. And so that's a problem to me. It's not it can't account for the very fundamental stuff that's its unit of analysis. Okay, so that's the, that's the soccer team. All right, now about our marriage. So um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you're getting any sugar tonight, Sean, after that objection, but how, how do we account for um, the fact that it's, how do we account for social facts, for, for the apparent uh, regularities uh, in social phenomena? Why is it, for example, that we can say of Democrats that they generally tend to vote uh, in favor or against certain issues, whereas Republicans tend to vote against or for certain other issues. So why is it, for example, that Republicans would be against, for example, um, very liberal views on trans rights uh, versus Democrats would generally be in favor? Why, why is it that we can draw that, that distinction? Um, now, it seems to me like uh, we can draw certain distinctions and, and find apparent regularities in things that definitely do not exist. Um, so one of them is witches. So it, it, it is not the case that witches exist. Um, witches definitely do not exist. But there were certain uh, criteria according to which people would predict what witches would do. You know, uh, you would find that when, when, uh, when witches... Uh, when it came close to the full moon, you would you would have these women walking the streets, and they would bleed at certain times of the month. Um, and you know, I can make these predictions, and they will they will come true more often than not. And yet, they weren't sufficient to say, well, there are witches. They just there aren't any witches. There's just these apparent regularities uh, without the thing existing that we think is behaving in a regular fashion. Um, so I. I'm not convinced that just because there's regularities in the way something seems to behave that that thing exists. Think about political parties, and we sort of talk about you know the strongly held positions of a particular political party. It seems to depend what timestamp we look at. So, for example, you know uh, Republicans were the party that you know ended slavery. Republicans under Nixon um, brought in the Environmental Protection Act. Um, when Ronald Reagan was, you know, the governor of California, uh, he was quite concerned about the Black Panthers openly carrying guns and thought that individuals didn't have a right to bear arms, you know, and these positions change over time. And so one of the problems with saying this group holds these views is that seems to be a strange thing to say when the group held very different views, you know, at a prior time to what it holds now. And really what you might think is going on is that some particular individual is ascendant, 
and holds a view and then that individual dies or leaves or changes their mind and we we ascribe their views to the entirety of the group um, and that really there's some kind of fiction going on there um, so there's a what, what is your take on things like nations does it make sense to talk about there being a country of America or you know um, these sort of very large groups do those things exist or are they just mere fictions about the function of a group or the telos of a group. So when you talk about these kind of collective beliefs or collective goals of a group, that's one way we might answer the alien. So we might say to the alien, well, what makes people part of a group is that they collectively believe the same thing and pursue the same goals and fight for the same cause. But as you say, causes change over time. Um, and that's a problem for that account. Um, it's very hard for us to say what a social group is, because if you're saying, well, what a social group is, is it's, it's members, then you've got to give an account of how it is the case that members can come and go from a social group, and yet the group persists. We think that the ANC Youth League, for example, has existed for decades, and yet the members of that ANC Youth League constantly change. As people grow up grow older and, and get above a certain age, they can no longer be part of the youth league. And yet the youth league is still there. It's the same youth league, but with different members. And as well with the ANC Youth League, it seems like its goals change over time. Um, so it doesn't seem like it's the individual members that make a group, and it doesn't seem like it's their goals that make a group. Um, so yeah, this is the difficulty that we have when discussing with the alien and providing an answer to this question. Well, what is it that makes a social group a social group? How do we guarantee this characteristic of social groups that it can persist through time despite changes? Um, so to answer your question about um, nations, no, I don't think it makes sense to talk about um, countries. Um, so at the very beginning of my thesis on the front page, I have a quote by um, Lenin uh, from his song. And, and it says, imagine there's no countries. Uh, it's, it isn't hard to do. Um, so, so the question would be, well, what makes a country a country? It's definitely not going to be its individual members because those, again, those members change all the time. Um, and it's not going to be its goal or its function. I mean, certain countries have had very different goals over time. Uh, you know, at some points in history, they've been to conquer other countries. That's been the goal. At other points in history, it's to defend themselves against foreign invaders. At other points, it's to prosper. At other points, it's to annex land. Um, there's, there's so many different goals that a country can have. It seems like the goal is not going to provide that, that unifying feature. Perhaps with countries, you might want to say it's, it's geographical location. So what makes a country a country is that it's a piece of land that's contiguous. But of course, that's not sufficient for there being a country because there's pieces of land that are contiguous across different countries' borders. So I can point to a piece of land that stretches between here and Botswana and Zimbabwe and say, well, that's a country. And you say, well, no, it's not because it's across borders. So in virtue of what do these borders delineate this country is a very hard question. Um, and I don't think there's a good answer, although I haven't given you all the answers on, on offer. I don't think there is a good one. So I, I find your, your answers very fascinating because they sound ever more extreme than my own. Um, and so, <laughs> so um, while Mark might give you a free pass at one of your previous statements, I don't think I will, because you said that you think actually there might not be any foundation for social science at all. And it seems that even in this recent question about delineating countries, talking about different nations and how they might relate to each other, it, I mean, it certainly seems to me from the news from TV, people are doing an okay job at talking about this stuff. So, so there are really two questions here. The one is, are they hallucinating? Are we all hallucinating? Is this all nonsense? And you know the TV is just noise, and we've just gotten we've been tricked into thinking that talking about nation states is at all meaningful. And the other one is, if it's not nonsense, if it's not literally meaningless, then what is going on when we talk, or at least think we're talking about nation states and groups and tribes and that sort of thing? I don't think that we're uttering nonsense when we talk about social phenomena and social groups. I think when you say that the Israelis and the Palestinians are fighting, you are not literally uttering gibberish. Uh, it's not just meaningless 
nonsense. I don't think that's the case. I think there is meaning to the terms Israel and Palestine. Um, the problem is we don't all agree on what those meanings are. So if I were to ask you, well, what is Israel? And I were to ask a thousand other people, what is Israel? I might get a lot of different answers and that's problematic. Um, so I, I deny that there is a consistency in meaning um, across people when they have beliefs about social phenomena. So that's, that's a big problem. But I'm not going so far as to say they have no meaning in mind whatsoever. What I'm, what I'm drawing a distinction between is the meaning of a term and the reference of a term. So it's possible for a term to mean something but have no referent. In other words, there's nothing in the world that it satisfies. So a good example is Santa Claus. Okay. So you and I can talk about Santa Claus. Yeah. And we seem to, in your words, do a pretty good job of talking about Santa Claus. We can watch a movie and when the, the fireplace in the chimney goes out and this, this creature comes down, comes down the, the fireplace, I say creature because um, there's a fantastic episode of Love, Death, and Robots that has just come out on Netflix about Santa Claus. Really good. I recommend you watch it. And Santa Claus is not, not a, 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 a ho-ho old friendly man. Uh, it's something else altogether. Uh, but the point is that it's very evident when you and I watch that from all the signaling of the Christmas music and, and the fireplace and the chimney and the tree with the presents under it, that this is a Christmas movie and we can expect to see Santa Claus at some point or discussion of Santa Claus. And that when something comes down the chimney, it must be Santa. Why? Because the meaning of Santa Claus has all of these associations built in, but there is no Santa Claus, right? So just because we can talk about something uh, with certain meanings uh, in mind uh, doesn't mean that it definitely exists. And I'm saying that groups are like Santa Claus. Maybe these things do refer to um, non-real entities. Okay. Um, as you say, there's no Santa Claus. There isn't really a country. There aren't really groups. Um, but that they're useful, that they're fictions, um, and that we've got some kind of collective agreement about what these fictions are, and that we can do all sorts of useful stuff because of that. So, for example, if we all believe that um, as South Africans, we need to, you know, put our shoulder to the grindstone and make sure that we prosper, that false belief in South Africa gets people motivated as individuals to go and do certain good things in the world. And you might think, for example, that you know it's one way to motivate your child is tell them there's this mystical being called Santa Claus, and if you're good throughout the year, you get presents, um, and the false belief generates good results. Uh, and you might think then, well, yeah, those things are all all a fiction, um, but it's a good fiction, and we should act as if these groups do exist. This view is often called instrumentalism. So it's the view that our beliefs in certain entities are instrumental in bringing about uh, positive consequences, they help us, they're theoretical entities, but they, they don't really exist. Some scientists believe this of um, things like quarks, um, subatomic particles, um, you, you can hold that view, but there's two things to say about it. The one is, it is entirely mysterious to me why the world would work out in such a way that those entities, talking about those entities is useful if those entities did not exist. That's entirely weird to me. Why would the world be set up in such a way that talking about those entities correctly predicts certain events if those entities weren't there? Um, it's entirely mysterious. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the one objection. And that's an objection to instrumentalist accounts generally, not just in the social sphere. Um, the second thing to say is, I'm not denying that there is some usefulness here, just like there is some usefulness to talking about witches. People talked about witches back in the day for reasons, you know, they were highly misguided and it caused all sorts of problems, but it also helped people get in line, right? So when there were crimes that couldn't be explained in the community and the police couldn't find the culprit, they would say, it was the witch. And then they would find a woman and burn her, which is terrible, right? It has terrible negative consequences, but it had some positive consequences, which is that everyone went home that night feeling safe and that the witch was burnt, okay? Now, 
they were better theories than the, the idea that there are witches. We later in time learned that there are no witches and that there were better theories about why these crimes happened. And one of those theories was that there were criminals that the police couldn't catch. And so we improved our criminology and the police perfected their methodology and we, we have a better society because of it. So I think that's the case with social phenomena and social groups. I think that we have this false theory that groups exist and it has some utility. It has some positive consequences. It helps us in certain ways to make certain predictions and to understand our world. But we would be much better off by dumping the theory entirely and just looking at individuals, talking about individuals. I want to push back on that, that last point a little bit by raising what I believe is called the indispensability argument, or the very least a version of it. Um, you say uh, these things are fictional entities. They're useful sometimes, but not all the time. We'd be better off without these uh, group sort of notions. But when we we try to take you seriously and we think, how could it be to describe even just a day in our lives, right? I, I, go to, I, I went earlier to the supermarket, but that's a social entity. So I, I went earlier to a, a building in which there were lots of people trying to buy food, but buying is a social phenomenon. So I went to a building where there were people trying to exchange uh, paper money or electronic bits for certain kinds of services, uh, but services is a, a social notion. And, and you, you can carry on this way for quite a while until you realize it's actually, so the argument goes, impossible to describe uh, a, a social scenario entirely in individualistic terms. So I'd like to get your, your response to that. How do you deal with um, describing the world in purely individual terms when it seems so difficult? Um, and why do you think it would be better to do that? Because it seems like a really convenient shorthand to just say, I went to the supermarket, I spent some cash, I, you know, I exchanged money in the, the market and that was it. That's a really convenient shorthand for an otherwise very, very long or indeed perhaps impossible description in individualistic terms. I think a very similar objection, I know that you want me to keep your views off the table, Sean, but I'm, I'm gonna bring one up anyway, given that we long married and, and I, need to, I, need to, I need to take a dig. So um, one of your views is this view of eliminative uh, materialism, which is the view that we don't have mental states. Um, we just have brain states. Now imagine I were to have one of our many emotional arguments with you, right? Where we fight about something and we say, Sean, I'm upset that you spoke to that other man in front of me or behind my back. It caused great jealousy. I'm, I'm very uh, worried about our future, uh, what's gonna happen to our relationship. Now imagine translating that fight into terms that don't reference mental states, that don't reference things like jealousy, or, uh, or concern or worry, uh, I would have to reference the individual neurons, neuronal states in my brain. So Sean, uh, when I saw you talking with that other man, uh, my um, neuron 642 started firing. And um, I, I'm not sure exactly which neuron it was, but I think it's 642. And, uh, and, and now my neuron uh, 73 is firing as well. Um, how very dare you uh, elicit neuron 73 firing in me? And, and you know, this is this either way I'm describing is actually much shorter than it would really be. We don't, we can't associate particular mental states with particular neurons. It's actually clusters of neurons, very sophisticated. We have billions, trillions, quadrillions of neurons. I don't know how many neurons we have, but we, at least we have quadrillions of interrelationships between our neurons. And it's those interrelationships that constitute mental states. Um, it would be nearly impossible for me to describe and to have this fight with you um, if, if, if there were no mental states uh, and we can't discuss them. Um, but does that mean there are mental states? Well, I'm guessing you'd want to say, well, there still aren't. Um, so the point of, of saying that was just, well, this is a problem for folks, folk theories generally, is that if you, for any view that eliminates folk theories, that if you deny a folk theory, because by its very nature, folk theories are so embedded in our discourse, it would be so hard to imagine a life without them. Um, 
but I think we could. And, and I think a, a part of living that life would be to drop a lot of the discussions that we do have. I, I think that if your, if your challenge is, well, can you describe a world like we have today without referencing mental state, without, without referencing social phenomena, well, then my answer will be that will be very hard uh, and maybe impo- it, would, it would actually be impossible. But that challenge is illegitimate because I'm saying, well, the world that you think we have today isn't the world, right? The real world is just composed of bunches of individuals. So I would not try and translate theories about how Democrats or Republicans vote because they aren't Democrats or Republicans. I wouldn't want to try and translate arguments about whether Israel or Palestine is right because, well, there is no Israel and there is no Palestine. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to translate the world that we inhabit into a world that's just composed of individuals and individuals' beliefs because, well, you know, that's not the world we actually live in. Um, so I agree that it makes things a lot harder, but it also requires a radical shift in the way we discuss things. And, you know, we do this in other sciences as well. So if you think about uh, when Newtonian physics was dropped uh, in favor of more complex physics. Um, Newtonian physics had enormous utility for a long period of time, but it was found that it just doesn't work under certain conditions. Uh, it didn't quite track the movements of Pluto, for example. Uh, in high, in high um, uh, gravity scenarios, Newtonian physics doesn't quite work. And so we had to drop Newtonian physics and adopt a much more sophisticated uh, set of ideas. And at the time, scientists could easily have said, well, we can't drop Newtonian physics because we can't talk about this new form of physics in the shorthand ways that we used to talk about Newtonian physics. It doesn't work as nicely. But of course, that's not a good objection because, well, the truth of the matter is, whether it's hard or not to talk about it, the truth of the matter is that Newtonian physics was false. And I'm saying the truth of the matter is that our social folk theory is false. One of the strategies that you have is when we're talking about our soccer case and you say, well, it looks indistinguishable from the zombie soccer players, from those that are genuinely part of a group. And you say, well, therefore, there must be a problem with the account. Is you trade on the notion that we do know what a real group is, that when we're thinking about the soccer team that wears the shirts, that believes that the other players are part of the same team, that is observed as being part of the same team, that that's a legitimate entity that we should think of as a group. And your point is to say, well, we need to try and find some kind of set of necessary and sufficient conditions which could fully explain this. And we're struggling on that front. And therefore, there's no groups. That seems to be the move. And I wonder if maybe that's the wrong approach. So if I say to you, um, take this one grain of sand and keep adding grains of sand until you get to a pile of sand. Okay. It's going to be very unclear when you've done it. You've got what's called the sororities problem. I said, give me the necessary and sufficient conditions for what constitutes a pile. You go, I can't. I know it when I see it. You know, um, And I wonder if really what we have here is a difficulty of saying, well, we can't come up with some really good rule set that will always tell us what a group is, but I know it when I see it. Um, Wittgenstein talks about these kind of family resemblance models. So, you know, he says, think about a game. Well, we think chess is a game and we think tennis is a game and we think that, um, let's say, rugby is a game. But they're all quite different from each other. So, you know, rugby and tennis both have a ball. Chess um, and tennis both have two players. Rugby has multiple players. You know, um, we all know there are games, but we can't come up with a necessary set of sufficient conditions. But we know they're all part of the same family. And maybe that's the approach we should be taking with regards to groups. I'm not actually demanding necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, I have discussed when claims seem to be false or accounts seem to be false because they don't provide necessary conditions. But really, actually, at least in my thesis, all that, I'm ca- that I care about are sufficient conditions. So all I want to know is under these conditions, do you have a group? And I don't even think you can provide sufficient conditions, never mind necessary conditions. Um, so that's that's the one the one issue. The second is that it seems like when you talk about a pile, a pile of of rocks, um, there's no great stakes involved there. So it seems to me like we can disagree whether three is a pile or four is a pile or five rocks is a pile. 
but there's no, there's nothing that really rests on this. There's, you know, this truly would be an armchair philosopher debate, right? So it truly would be a bunch of philosophers who sit in their armchairs and say, well, three, three rocks is a pile or four rocks is a pile. But there's nothing that rests on this, you know, and philosophers are often criticized for this is that we have debates about meaningless things. But social groups, that's meaningful. There's a lot that rests on that, an enormous amount that rests on those identities. Just think for a moment about the enormous debate that's being, ha been, been had around women's rights and around transsexuals' rights. These are, and transgendered rights, these are enormous debates. Um, enormous amount of normativity is based on groups. And those stakes, that normativity is not uh, ascribed to piles of things. And even games. So yes, games matter, but not nearly as much as groups. By the way, I think we could have that discussion about whether you could provide a set of sufficient or necessary conditions for games. I think you probably could. I think Wittgenstein was wrong. I'm not gonna try and provide that here. I think it would require more thoughts on my part, but I suspect that one could provide necessary and sufficient conditions for games. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that when you're talking about certain types of phenomena that don't matter, normatively that don't generate shoulds that we should give transgendered people rights for example um you know rocks there's no shoulds involved uh, there's no shoulds when it comes to piles of rocks you know uh, if it's a pile of of rocks it doesn't suddenly develop rights um and obligations and value whereas groups seem to do that um and so we better be clear about what we're talking about when we suddenly live in a world where we're trying to say there's obligations and responsibilities and values associated with these entities. As you, you may know, and some of your listeners may know, I don't think that we live in that world where there are these obligations and whatnot. So I'm, I'm quite interested to, to push back on what you say about necessary and sufficient conditions, because I can see your arguments working quite well when it comes to necessary conditions. Um, there are lots of interesting counterexamples that we can invent or conceptualize uh, where, yeah, some conditions just don't hold. However, I want to push back on this issue about necessary uh, as rather sufficient conditions, because I can conceive of a group, in fact, I am part of, well, I, I, I consider myself to be part of such a group, where we would all say, yes, we are part of this group. Uh, like you, you could take us to a police interview and make us, you know, put our hand on some holy text and, you know, we'll swear an oath that will tell the truth. We will each say we are part of this group. Why is that not sufficient to say, at the very least, for whenever this group began, let's say it began two months ago, let's say it will end, you know, four months in the future. Why is that not a sufficient reason to believe in the existence of a social group. So, I mean, just you know, to, to make it a bit more fun for your, for your listeners, I, I have recently started playing badminton, um, and we, you know, we play with the shuttlecock, and we call ourselves uh, proudly, valiantly, the cock smashers, and um, <laughs> that that is that is really our group name. There is a WhatsApp group. I, I can show you a picture, um, but that is our group name. We are the cock smashers. We intend to to join a club, and we'll we'll play competitive sports as the cock smashers. So. Why are we not a legitimate group in your view? You want from me to give you a case where there's a bunch of individuals that have all the beliefs of the cock smashers and, uh, and yet they're not a social group. Yeah? Okay. So I'll give you that case um, just because it's, it fits into a counterexample that I've discussed in the past and then I'll apply it to your cock smashers. Um, and the case uh, is our marriage, Sean, you're, you're, you're in my marriage. Okay, just, just for the record, Sean and I are not married. Um, but, but let's just for, for a moment assume we are, okay? And you believe we're married and I believe we're married. Why is that not sufficient for us to be in a marriage? Okay, so there's this really cool movie that I, I love uh, called The Dark City. Uh, it was uh, produced a year before The Matrix and I think The Matrix borrowed perhaps stole quite a lot from Dark City, okay. It's, it's one of those great movies that was never given its due because the Matrix outshattered it. So here's what happens in the Dark City. 
So there's the city that lives in perpetual night. If there's never daylight. And um, what happens is while, while the individuals in the dark city uh, are asleep, they uh, get moved around by these super powerful aliens at night. So you go to sleep uh, in a bed with some other man and you wake up uh, the next morning, which is still dark because it's this dark city, sleeping next to me. And what the aliens do is they don't just move you around, they change your beliefs as well, your social beliefs. They implant false memories. So they implant into your head the view that you and I have been married, that we got married three years ago uh, in a coastal town uh, on the beach with all of our friends present. So you have this false memory and this false belief that we are married and the aliens implant corresponding false beliefs into my head that we were married. And the aliens take it further. They give us some kids downstairs who we've actually never met. And we, you and I have never met in reality, but our false memories suggest we have. And these false kids, well, they're real children, but they're kids that we've never met. Uh, we have this memory of adopting them and becoming a family together, right? And uh, the aliens implant false memories in the kids as well, that we are their parents. Um, and when we wake up the next morning, we all kind of just kick into gear and carry on with apparently what we think is our lives, the lives that we've lived every day for the last five years since we got married. Um, and in reality, we never got married. In reality, we don't know those children, they don't know us, and we don't know each other, but we believe that we're married. We believe we have, have a family, and we believe of believe it of each other. Just like you and the cock smashers believe of each other that you're part of a social group, um, we have these beliefs of each other, and yet we're not actually a family. We're not actually married. So we have the beliefs, but they're not sufficient to generate a marriage. Now, you might want to say, okay, no, we actually are married. But I'd say to you, but hold on, you cannot tell the difference between our apparent marriage that we believe in the case of the aliens implanting false memories and beliefs into us and us actually getting married five years ago. Those beliefs do not distinguish between the two cases. The beliefs are not sufficient to generate a real marriage. And I would say the same in your cock smashers group. Those beliefs are not sufficient to generate a real badminton group. You just believe there is one. So I do want to push back a bit on, on this notion of what, what you mean when you talk about whether or not we are actually a group or whether you or, or I are actually married, because this seems like philosophical hocus pocus, right? For all any of us in this discussion know, the world was created five minutes ago and we've been implanted with this memory uh, as of our, our own history and so on. Uh, we don't actually know that we exist, but, but we do. We've got sufficient reason to believe that, that, we, um, that we exist, that we've had our history and so on. Um, and what else could you want? It seems as if your epistemic standard is far too high. Uh, and so this is the objection that I'm raising to you, right? That you're right, we can imagine the scenario where we've been implanted with this beliefs. My, my group uh, actually isn't a group, They've just been, you know, told about all this WhatsApp nonsense and so on. Um, you know, when it's not really there, but for all the evidence we have access to, actually, it sure seems like we're part of a group. And you're saying it, it doesn't because there's this alternative possibility. Yes, there is this alternative possibility. But doesn't that say that your epistemic standard is too high? Okay, good. But I'm not interested in epistemic standards. So I'm not saying that these are the things we need to know for there to be groups. And I'm not saying that we don't know that there are social groups. I'm saying there aren't. So, so you're asking under what are certain beliefs sufficient for generating the existence of a social group? And I'm saying, well, no, because I can give you cases where there are these beliefs, but no social groups. And you're saying, but hold on, that's a very bizarre counterexample. For all intents and purposes in our world, isn't the belief that there are these social groups sufficient to generate at least the knowledge that there are social groups? 
And I would say to you, well, those beliefs are sufficient to generate perhaps justified beliefs. They're justified, right? But they're not sufficient to generate knowledge because you can't know something that's false. You can have, you can have justified beliefs that something is false, but you can't know it. Um, I mean, let me give you a, a, a more down-to-earth example, right? So suppose um, you and I are not married, we're just friends, and we're in a car crash, we're in a car accident. And afterwards, what happens is that our friends decide to play a prank on us. And our, in the car accident, our memories are wiped. We both get amnesia, we both get head injuries, and we both wake up and we say, well, I don't remember who I am. And I don't remember who that guy in that bed over there is. And our friends say to us, actually, Jason, uh, that's Sean and you guys are married. And they say the same thing to you. They say, well, actually, Sean, you're married to Jason. And, you know, we have no reason to doubt them. Um, and, you know, the next day we say, okay, well, uh, it's really nice to re-meet you, Sean. Uh, turns out we're married. Let's carry on with our married lives. And then a week later, the friends come to us and say, actually, that was all a joke. You were never married. We would have sufficient reason to be upset, right? And say, no, turns out we're not married at all. Turns out it was all just a joke. On your view, there's no difference. There's no difference between the case where we really were married and the case where it was just a joke. The two are equally legitimate. And I'm saying to you, that, that doesn't make sense. But in both cases, we're justified in believing that we're married, right? It's just in the one case, it turns out our justified beliefs are false. So I feel like now is the perfect time to say that great TV line, which is don't try this at home, kids. Don't go and play a prank <laughs> like that on your friends that have just had a car accident. <laughs> I mean, what's of course interesting is that you could, after being pretend married for a week, discover that that's really what your divine purpose is, which is to be married. <laughs> I want to I wanna raise something else, which is it seems like the cases that you've given us trade on a particular commonality, which is that there is something that doesn't track reality going on. So in the Dark City case, what you have is a false belief. And in the zombie soccer team, what you have is a false observation. In other words, we look at the zombies and we think those are individuals that are coordinating with each other, but we're wrong. And so I wonder if there's not a way to try and come up with an account that brings in certain pre-requirements, which is that the belief states about the world must track reality and there must actually be belief states. So in other words, we can say zombies don't have internal beliefs about each other, so they're not a group, we can chuck them out. And we don't have to worry about the false husband and wife uh, case, they're not a group either because they believe false things about reality. The things we want to include are people that actually did go and go through a marriage ceremony and do still believe it of each other and are still married. And the same with the soccer team where you know they're recognized as a team because of their behavior and they also believe themselves to be part of the team. The one response is that you're begging the question. So you're saying, well, I want you to give me a case where there really is a social group and it's not. And I'd say, well, of course I can't do that because you've specified that there is a social group, that we really were married in the past and we're not married now. How can I do that? Because you've specified in the case that we were married. Um, so the one challenge would be, well, can you provide such a case without question begging, without already in the case specifying that there is a social group? Can you use non-social terms when specifying the case? Um, and then I'll try and you know, give you the counter example. So it's quite hard to do. Um, and in so doing, you might have to give me the account that you have effectively. Um, it's hard, it's hard. Okay, the second, uh, the second response is going to inadvertently help you a bit in that. So the second response is, some philosophers have said, well, I have these problems with the subjectivist account, specifically um, that it's, it does, subjective mental states are not sufficient or necessary for social groups. I also have problems with the objectivist account, um, where you don't talk about people's subjective states, you don't talk about their beliefs and their thoughts, you just talk about their coordination. And my problem there is that the individuals might not have the requisite subjective states, so they could be zombies. Um, perhaps there's some uh, solution that involves a combination of the two, a hybrid, 
of the subjectivist and the objectivist account. Perhaps that's the solution. And perhaps that's what you're trying to get at. So the way that you could say, say it, the way that you could spell it out in the, um, the Dark City case is that you've got Sean and I waking up, believing that we're married. And it just so happens to be the case that we have this long history of believing that we're married. In fact, five years ago, we did um, go, go to a coastal city and we did get married. And it turns out that those children downstairs, we really did adopt all those years ago. And so that seems to be a good account of, of what, is, what our marriage is, is it's the combination of our beliefs and our history, our objectivist on the outside verifiable history of what we did. Um, and so there is a social group. And of course, if, you know, if that is the case that, if you set up the case that way, it seems like, well, yeah, Sean and I are married. But from a philosophical point of view, when you combine accounts together, you have to be very careful that you're not inheriting the weaknesses with both. So if you say, well, what a group is, is it's a set of objectivist phenomena, in other words, phenomena, certain observations we can make from the outside, and it's a set of subjective states, in other words, certain beliefs about being part of the group, well, you've got to make sure that you're not weakening your account so much because you're inheriting the objections to both. So let's just take this account seriously for a moment. Um, it seems like in certain cases, we're going to lack one of those two. So let's say it's a conjunctive account. You need to have both the objectivist and the subjectivist requirements. Uh, one of the examples I gave earlier is going to be a problem. It's, it's going to be the case of this committee that doesn't meet very often. It, it meets annually seems like the committee has the subjective states. It, they believe they're part of a committee and they believe that they will convene. They believe they're part of a group. And so it appears that they are on the subjectivist account, but the objectivist can't account for that, right? As I said earlier. So the objectivist says, well, I don't know what's going on here. Um, they're not meeting during the year. So both of the criteria are not fulfilled. Only one is fulfilled. It's not the case that both are fulfilled. The subjective mental states are there, but not the, uh, the objective a phenomena of seeing it from the outside. So it's quite hard to combine uh, accounts because you actually are going to limit to a very select types of social groups where all the mental states are present and all the behaviors present, but often the one is missing. So it seems like when I've got to pick bullets to bite, the one is to say, okay, maybe there were certain things that I thought were groups like committees that meet, you know, on an irregular basis. And I'll just bite the bullet that that thing's not a group. You know, that's interesting. Versus saying none of it is a group. There are no marriages. There are no families. There are no nations. There are no tribes. There are no companies. Um, there's no other social phenomena because all that stuff is generated from these social facts. And so maybe what we have to do is go, okay, there's a pairing down that's got to happen. Um, but that seems like the easier pill to swallow than the one that, you know, the account that you want us to take. Well, if you've done that, you've given me a lot already. So you've said, well, there's this folk theory, which says that there's social groups and that there's this unified account of social groups, even though there's different types of social groups, it seems that social groups have certain commonalities. One of them is that they can persist through time despite changes in their membership and their functions. Another one is that they can have collective actions. They can perform collective actions. So the soccer team can win the game. Another one is that um, they can have value. So we can say that the Mayan civilization is valuable. Um, just because it was a group um, or that a language is valuable because it belongs to a group. Um, there's these features that seem to be common across all groups just because they are social groups, not because they're that particular type of social group. And so just according to our folk theory, it seems like there's a unified account. If you now grant me that there's no unified account of social groups, that there's nothing in common between these different categories at all, that's sufficient to generate these characteristics of persisting through time and performing collective actions and um, having value, um, you've given me a lot. Um, you've, you've chipped away at the notion that this folk account of social phenomena is, uh, is, is indubitable, uh, is obviously true. And it just opens the door a crack for me to say, okay, now let me start to tell you about my account, that there are no social groups and no social phenomena and start to really explain what that kind of world would be like. And you now need to listen. And at the end of it, you're going to say, well, there's these objections to my account. And I'm going to say, well, yeah, 
but there's also objections to your account and there's problems for your account and you're willing to admit that there's these objections. And so I'd want to say, well, at the end of the day, the objections to my account, yeah, there's going to be some objections, but my account is about as good as yours. And that's, that's a win for me. I would say, well, if we can if we can reach the conclusion, not necessarily that we know that social groups don't exist, but just that um, the idea that there's social groups has some, has some problematic associations. It, we start to worry about it. Uh, we're not so sure anymore. The view that there aren't social groups is starting to look more plausible. Uh, it's, it's a contender. Um, then I would say, okay, I've done my job. I've instilled doubt. And that's what good philosophy is. It's about just instilling doubt. So I mean, you've been having this discussion with two people that you've labeled psychopaths and, and sociopaths, and uh, you, you've not done a great job of defending yourself from that label uh, as it stands today. But I do want to give you the chance to humanize yourself a little bit. Um, and, and I guess as we start to close off, I do want to ask, I suppose that the quite human question, look, you, you mentioned it earlier. There are these uh, quite contentious battles these days Israelis, Palestinians, a literal battle, transgender issues, uh, race issues that we've spoken about. All of these relate to social groups. And, and you are here advocating, first, strongly, there aren't any such things. And then a little bit recently, weak, a little bit weakened, um, look, at, at least I'm instilling doubt. For the person who just says, no, there are these social groups. I know it. I feel it in my bones. How can you help to ameliorate their false sense of the world? How can, you, how can you make it easier to see your point of view? What is the, the trick, the magic bullet, to make this all seem a little bit more palatable? So I, I think the, the one way to soften the bullet a little bit, to butter it up, uh, is to point out that historically humans have absolutely certain about certain things. We were absolutely certain that the earth was flat, that witches exist, that um, Newtonian physics was correct, that um, before we, we discovered modern chemistry that there was phlogiston that explained heat. So we believed back when uh, that when you light a fire, what's happening is there's not a molecular energy that's being excited that explains why there's heat on your hands. The real reason is because there's this mysterious substance called phlogiston that exists in the ether. And they thought that space was composed of the ether. And, and humans were absolutely certain about these things. If you, if you say to someone, alchemy is not real, phlogiston doesn't exist, the ether isn't real, God doesn't exist, witches don't exist, the earth is round and is not at the center of the universe, they would have said to you, you're an absolute crackpot, right? On any one of those, never mind the combination, they would have burned you alive for sowing discontent and said, you're a total sociopath, you're a psychopath for trying to undermine the very fabric of our society. So one way of, of, of trying to butter the bullet for someone is to say, well, just because you're absolutely sure about something, that you feel it in your bones, that your whole life has been built around this. There's a whole lot of people at different stages of history that believed differently and felt just as sure. And even today, there's a whole lot of people that don't share your belief, beliefs, not necessarily about social groups, but perhaps religious beliefs, and are just as sure. So could you be wrong? And just because so many people agree with you doesn't mean that all those people are right. There are many beliefs that we've had historically where we all believed it and we were all wrong. And the people who disagreed were seen as really bad. Another way of thinking about it is I could start to try to explain away your beliefs. And one first step in that, and there's quite a few steps, but I'll just illustrate the first step is by saying, well, the reason you believe what you believe is because of an evolutionary process. So humans would not have survived alone historically. If you think about it uh, prehistorically, if you think, if you think about um, humans existing on the plains of the Serengeti, if you were a lone human, you would not survive. You would not be able to keep a lookout at night for wild animals. You wouldn't be able to split the, the 
the required tasks of cooking food and hunting for food. You wouldn't have been able to take care of your young and hunt at the same time. You wouldn't have been able to have young um, in order to continue your species um, if you just existed alone. So we have this evolutionary strong drive to believe that we're part of a social group. And that had immense utility prehistorically. You literally would not survive. Babies cannot survive without a group around them um, for a long time. And believing strongly that they're part of that group and that group believing strongly that that child is part of the group. Families are an evolutionary requirement for humans just because of the way our biology is built. And so when I say to people, well, there aren't families, I think it pushes back against an incredibly primal belief that's been instilled through evolution. But now here's the thing. Evolution doesn't guarantee that the beliefs that are formed as a result of it are true. And this is something that we've discussed at length in um, our episode with Sean, um, because Sean thinks that we can explain away, for example, our moral beliefs, beliefs that certain things are right or wrong based on evolution. Um, and I think we can do the same thing here for social groups. Well, Sean, I want to thank you for helping enliven my marriage with Jason. We like to sort of shake things up every so often in Brand Nevada. And uh, you've been an absolutely wonderful co-host. 